0: In the world of historical true crime, one serial killer is by far the most notorious, despite the fact that to this day we still don't know their identity. Yep, this episode we are talking about Jack the Ripper. In 1888, Jack the Ripper haunted London's Whitechapel district. He preyed on the vulnerable, killing five innocent women, and then, just as suddenly as he emerged, he disappeared. In this episode, the first installment of our two episodes on Jack the Ripper, we're going against the grain. Instead of talking about Jack, we're talking about his victims, the canonical five women that he so viciously killed. Who were they? What were their lives like? How did social inequality lead to Jack's reign of terror? Or not just lead to it, create the
1: conditions that produced it. Hello and welcome to Yesterday's News, a podcast brought to you by Factnate.com. I'm Dancy. And I'm Veronica. And this season of the show is all about historical true crime. We're exploring history's dark side through courtroom dramas, executions, disappearances, mysterious deaths, and much, much more. This week, and next week too, we're talking about history's most famous serial killer, Jack the Ripper.
0: So before we get going on this episode, just fair warning, this one's obviously going to be quite dark. This episode is going to talk about these women's lives, but also their deaths, which are horrendous and grisly and very gory and gruesome. So we will warn you before we go into the details of each murder If you want to listen to the episode and get an idea of their lives, uh, just clicking ahead a few 30-second increments when we give you the warning should do the trick. However, just consider this a blanket content warning. This episode includes descriptions of violence, murder, and mutilation. So be prepared and make your decisions based on this warning.
1: In 1888, which is the year that the murders of the five canonical women occurred, the five canonical victims, we get Queen Victoria at her apex. She had at that point spent just over 50 years on the throne. England was now synonymous with Queen Victoria. This was the Victorian age. Mm Mm-hmm. Today, I think we carry a simplistic and really more accurately false legacy of what the Victorian Age meant and what age that the Rippers victims were living in. We have an idea of the Victorian Age as one of prosperity, of technological advancement, of industrialization that was good, um, of honor, and of course, of empire and of empire again being a good thing as the years have gone by, we have started to question colonization. We started to question industrialization. And they did also question industrialization back then too. But the Victorian ages good PR still clings to it a lot, I find. It still is this bygone era that we should miss in some ways. And a lot of what I'm here to do in this opening is smash that for everyone. A worthy mission. Very good. Yes. For one thing, there was a huge disparity in experiences. And when we talk about the good things about the Victorian age, we are often talking about middle class or higher people. And the things that the working class went through were just completely different. And their experience of life was completely different from the middle class and above. So, for example... Middle class ideas of childhood are ones that we find um, very similar to today. And in fact, like the Victorian age in a lot of ways is like where some of these ideas came about. Stuff of innocence, of magic. Now, like imagine a Charles Dickens novel with a kid in a workhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Working class ideas of childhood was workhouses. Uh, Workhouses are exactly what they sound, (laughs) child labor. And they also had adults too, but just children working all hours of the day in horrific conditions. I actually wanted to just mention in 1833, there was an intervention for child labor laws. (laughs) Guys, This, okay, this was the intervention that they managed to push through in Parliament. Um, It was called the 10 Hours Act. Oh my God. It got through that children in cotton and woolen mills had to be above the age of nine. You were no longer allowed to employ children below the age of nine after the 10 Hours Act. And anyone who was under 18 could only work a maximum of 10 hours a day on the weekdays. That was the intervention. (laughs) Jesus, that bar is low. And this is what many of our victims, that was the world they grew up in. Now, in terms of adulthood, the middle class bride was kept a little bit in ignorance of like what the sex act actually meant. And actually that was very traumatic for a lot of women because they'd get to their wedding night and they'd be like, wait, what? I'm sorry, what? (laughs) You want to put what in (laughs) what? Yeah, she was called
0: the angel in the household. And that always makes me think of dogma and how the angels have no genitals.
1: Similar Mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. happening in the Victorian period. Yes. Working class women, however, many of them supplemented their living through sex work. Sex work becomes, quote, the great social evil. That's literally what they called it. Wow. Wow. And there was this proliferation of institutions who were trying to reclaim, usually religiously, sex workers. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're popping up like mushrooms everywhere at this point. It's not that before this, there weren't as many sex workers. It's not like the sex workers have suddenly multiplied just like these reclamation houses. No, it's the world's oldest profession. Yes. It's that now Victorian society is categorizing this. And because it's categorizing this and policing this, then people feel like there are more of them because they are suddenly paying attention to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, contagious diseases become policed as well. The Contagious Disease Act was basically like a a stop and frisk for women with venereal diseases. Not men, of course. Not men. No, no, no. God, no. The men don't matter. It's the women's bodies we've got to police here. Great. And that all sex work and woman's vulnerability and woman being policed was also all very tied to the city, to London, to anonymity, to this idea of fast living, to industrialization, to commodifying bodies. Uh, So this is the world that Jack the Ripper stalks into on those fateful weeks in 1888. So now we're going to switch
0: gears and go from the broad overview of this society and this city, and we're going to talk about the five women that Jack the Ripper killed. I'm up first with his first canonical victim, Mary Ann Nichols. So Mary Ann Nichols was actually known as Polly, and that is what I will call her throughout this segment. She was a printer's daughter. She married a man named William Nichols. They had six children together. It sounds like a normal life. However, things start going wrong in the 1870s. She starts drinking very heavily, and by 1880, she does something completely taboo by Victorian moral standards. She abandons her family. She leaves her husband and children. The reason Polly left is because her husband was almost certainly having an affair with a neighbor. Once Polly Mm. leaves, he lives with her. They're married in every Mm. way except legally because he's still married to Polly. She never divorces him because divorce was very, very taboo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, without a husband, Polly is now a single woman. She's a fallen woman, I guess you could say, right? Like If you're not that angel of the household, there are not many options for you.
1: It strikes me that this idea of the angel in the house, what it implies is safe and regular lodging, which none of these women have. Yeah. The two concepts are entwined. Polly
0: leaves her husband and her children, and she becomes an itinerant woman. She begs on the street. She stays with male partners that she's not married to. She occasionally got work as a servant in households. But the thing is that she is still struggling with alcohol dependence issues. And whenever she goes through an especially hard period, she ends right back up at the workhouse, Mm -hmm. which we touched on Mm -hmm. at the beginning. The workhouse, as Dancy said, was this really patchwork attempt at giving impoverished people stability. The idea was you can like live here, we'll feed you, you need to work all day for your room and board, but like it's a place for you to go. In practice, the workhouse was filthy. You were malnourished. There was regular beatings from the people who were running it. You did not want to be there. So understandably, Polly only goes there when it is her only option.
1: I mean, we were talking about Charles Dickens and how uh, I find them a little maudlin. But honestly, you can't get maudlin about the workhouse. It was a garbage existence. You cannot over-dramatize it. Yeah, and this is why
0: so many women that we're going to talk about – You know, they spend time at workhouses, but they do not like it there. Polly, for instance, she chooses to tramp, to sleep on the street, to stay in these lodging houses, which are pretty filthy and and vermin-infested places, to just rent a bed for the night. This is what she prefers to the workhouse, you know? Like, that's a sign of how bad it is. Anyway, here's what is happening in the immediate lead-up to her murder. Polly has a brief period as a servant in the country— It seems like a really ideal gig for her. It's a beautiful home. She is getting fed well, but she leaves. She up and leaves after a few months. Uh, We don't know why, but she takes all her things, all the things her employer bought for her, and she heads back to London. Hmm. She dies shortly after this last escape. On the night of August 31st, 1888, Polly got drunk at a pub. A friend saw her at 2.30 in the morning stumbling on the street The friend tried to convince Polly to go to a lodging house and sleep, but Polly couldn't afford it and didn't like it. Lodging houses weren't great either. They were very crowded. They were dirty. Polly says, no, she's not going to go there. And this is the last time she is seen alive. At 3.40 in the morning, a man sees Polly's body. Content warning, this is her dead body. You can skip forward 30 seconds if this kind of thing is not for you. Polly's skirts are pulled up. Her face is bruised. Her neck has been cut so severely that she is almost decapitated. There are cuts on her spinal cord. That is how deep her throat has been slashed. Mm. Her torso was cut multiple times with slashes going diagonally from under her breast to her hip bone. This is a savage attack. Her intestines are exposed. Her vagina was stabbed twice. The police can't get wind of who murdered Polly. But sooner than anyone would like... have
1: another victim on their hands and that woman's name was annie chapman but before we get to her end we do need to start with her life chapman actually came from a respectable family her father was a military man and then a ballet and they were doing pretty well for themselves all things considered her nickname was dark annie because she had dark wavy hair However, despite um, her relatively comfortable upbringing, everyone in her family really noted from a young age that Annie had a weakness for drinking. Um, They did try to get her to stop, and she went through periods of her life where she did wean herself off alcohol, but um, as with Polly, this this would kind of contribute to why she was where she was on the night that Jack the Ripper got her. In 1869, Annie married uh, John James Chapman. Yes, they were related. <laughs> oh, God. All the fucking time. <laughs> I know. Um, again, John James Chapman was fairly respectable. He was in the service of a nobleman, and they had three children together, Emily, Annie, and the youngest, John. John, however, was born with a physical disability uh, that caused them quite a lot of stress, and they eventually placed him in a home home. At that time that Annie was having her children, she'd actually stopped drinking. This is one of her, her dry spells. Mm-hmm. But John's disability and, I mean, the stress, but also I think, like, the discrimination at the time around physical disabilities really put a lot of stress on her. And this actually gradually, they believe, increased Annie's use of alcohol at the time. And then this really awful tragedy happens where her daughter Emily died at age 12 from meningitis. And this threw both Annie and her husband into total despair. I mean, I think that there's a tendency, though, to view not just the Victorian age, but sort of previous centuries where life is just sort of disposable. But no, when people lost children, it didn't matter how that it happened more often than now. It was very, very painful. And this put both Annie and John Chapman into a really big spiral. They both start to drink very heavily. It's at this time that we start seeing Annie get arrested for public intoxication quite a lot. And eventually their marriage just doesn't make it. They separate in 1884. And at that point, John, her husband, gives Annie weekly payments and takes custody of their uh, remaining daughter, Annie. At this point, separated from her husband and her children, Annie lives in a familiar place, Whitechapel, and a little bit of uh, a spit around lodging houses. She ekes out a living. Um, she even gets together with like a sieve maker. And things go okay again for a little bit. She is definitely not over the dissolution of her marriage, the death of her daughter, the disability of her son. But there's something like normalcy until in 1886, her husband dies of cirrhosis so his drinking mm. kills him and this stops the payments that annie had been receiving from him um in fact she actually only found out about his death because the payment stopped so she went to his uh, to her brother-in-law to his brother and asked like what's up with them and, and that's how she found out he died um Oof. at this point the sieve maker leaves her probably because those payments have stopped which is just really oh, rough god and her depression increases of course then we hit September 1888. Jack the Ripper has just struck his first victim that we know of, Polly. I mean, yes, I'll probably talk about this in the next episode, but you have to imagine there have been victims before this. But in any case, people are probably on high alert. People of Annie's world know that a woman they they know, they may have seen around the streets has been killed. Annie at this point is living in a lodging house, Um, she's earning her living mostly crocheting, selling flowers, and she does perform casual sex work when she needs the money. The day before her death on September 7th, um, Annie was actually feeling quite ill. And this is such a cruel irony, I'm not sure what to call it. But the coroner who later examined her body um, found out that her illness was actually terminal, and it would have killed her within months before she meets Jack the Ripper. The night of Annie's death, um, she doesn't have enough money for a bed at the lodging house where she's staying in. And unlike Polly, she does tend to stay in lodging houses. She's okay with them. And she likely goes out to find a John to earn that money. She tells uh, one of her companions, I won't be long. And she says, see that Tim keeps the bed for me. So she's planning on returning that night, paying for her lodging um, and spending the night in bed and waking up alive. We... Do you know her last moments. One eyewitness who did know her saw Annie talking to a man around 5.30 a.m. in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. This eyewitness described the man as 40, taller than Chapman. But by the way, Chapman was five feet. So, okay. Like he's taller than her. That's yeah, not saying <laughs> yeah. much. Um, and the eyewitness also described him as having a shabby, genteel look. Uh, we also know maybe her last words um, before the attack. The man said, will you? And Chapman said, yes. And again, that's likely the last time that anyone saw her alive, because just an hour to maybe only half an hour later, somebody finds Annie's body in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. And again, just a a content trigger warning here. I'm going to discuss a little bit about how they found her and the state they found her. So you can just fast forward if that's not what you want to hear. When they find her body, no one is in doubt that it is the same man who killed Polly. Annie Chapman's throat is slashed, but the killer has actually gone further this time. He's escalated. Mm He's cut open her abdomen as before, but he's now taken a section of her stomach and put it on her left shoulder. And then he's taken another part of her skin and her small intestines and put them on her right shoulder. And Annie was sober when she died. She was not drinking at the time. Mm -hmm. This kicks the city off into a state of total panic because she's found a week after Polly. We know by the signs that it is the same person that has killed them both. And London is really under a reign of terror at this point. And that reign continues. Very,
0: very shortly after, we are still in late September, Jack has another victim. This woman's name is Elizabeth Stride. She was born Elizabeth Gustafson, and she is known as Long Liz because she had a long oval-shaped face. Elizabeth was a Swedish immigrant who came to London. She began life as a farmer's daughter. However, things devolve fairly quickly. As a teenager in Sweden, she worked as a domestic servant, which was very common. However, we can tell that something has gone wrong because in 1865, her name is recorded in a registry for sex workers. Now, does this mean she was a sex worker? Um, I honestly do not care if she was or not. It has no bearing on whether mm-hmm. anything that happens to her is okay.
1: Yeah, the only bearing it has is that it made have made her more vulnerable, and it may have been why Jack the Ripper targeted her.
0: Yeah, it has no bearing on her worth as a person or mm-hmm. like her humanity. Let's just be super clear about that. Yeah, I also want to shout out a book by Hallie Rubenhold. It's called The Five. And it is where I got a lot of information. It was a major source for this episode. I highly recommend that you look at it. Yeah, it's great it's really great. I will just say that Hallie Rubenhold is a bit obsessed with whether or not the victims were sex workers in Mm -hmm. a way that does seem to pathologize sex work as inherently something that changes your moral identity. I think if Mm -hmm. you pay it that much attention, you're actually kind of like doing something harmful. It's less of an issue to me other than as Dancy said. Anyway, as Hallie Rubenhold notes though, and this is a very helpful distinction, being on a registry for sex workers doesn't mean that you're a sex worker. It can mean that you're a single pregnant woman or you're a woman just suspected of, quote, lecherous living. This was a catch-all for a woman living outside the bounds of that angel in the household. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So was Elizabeth on the list because she was a sex worker? Maybe she was. Maybe she was on there because she was single and pregnant at this time. Hallie Rubinold believes that she had been impregnated by a person close to the family that she was working for as a servant. Being on this registry is humiliating. A requirement for anyone on the list was these invasive genital exams to make sure that the women didn't have diseases that they could spread. Of course, there was no list or invasive exams for the men who were employing sex workers. Of course not. All of this is put on women. I
1: mean it's it's the same vector as virginity, right? Like a girl gets her virginity taken away and then is is, mm-hmm. you know, used goods but the dude is somehow cleansed and and active and fine and intact. Yeah, it's horrible. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I mean, those problems have been around for a while. We also know that Elizabeth contracted syphilis at this time. Based on the timeline, it might have been the father of the baby. She was forced to stay at a medical center for people with sexual diseases. I say medical center, I mean, basically like an unofficial overcrowded prison. Things only get worse for Elizabeth. She has a stillborn premature daughter in 1865, Shortly after, she turns to sex work, and then she becomes a servant for a German couple. Elizabeth uses a small windfall that may have been from her mother's will to move to London in 1866. I think reasonably, she wants a fresh start. So Mm -hmm. once she's in London, Elizabeth works as a servant for a wealthy man near Hyde Park. This is a really good step up for her. Um, And then she gets married to a man named John Thomas Stride in 1869. By 1877, though, so a little under a decade later, she and Thomas have separated for unknown reasons— Elizabeth is now living in a workhouse and she's telling people this fantastical tale that her husband died in this disaster where a ship called the Princess Alice collided with another ship. About 700 people died in this disaster. So, I mean, this was a sort of canny way of reinventing herself as a tragic victim of Mm. circumstance. Mm -hmm. It got her pity. People would donate to her, etc. I mean, but this is not true. Her husband is still alive. They actually briefly reunited. But by 1882, they're completely done. After this, Elizabeth becomes, as we have talked about with Polly, a bit of a transient, a grifter. She lives as a widow. She scams at least one person with her story about the Princess Alice disaster. She's also living at a Whitechapel workhouse, which, as we've discussed, is very bad. She also worked as a charwoman, which is like a babysitter, but for housework, like contract work, no stability, hard Mm. work, bad pay, Mm -hmm. and then. Her husband dies in 1884. Weeks later, Elizabeth is arrested for drunk and disorderly behavior, as well as soliciting sex. This is a down period, but she kind of gets it back together. She has a relationship with a dock worker for about three years off and on. We know from him that Elizabeth struggled with alcohol issues like the other victims we've discussed. And when Elizabeth wasn't living with this dock worker named Michael Kidney, she was on her own. She was getting charity payments from the church. She was doing sex work to supplement her income. She was doing cleaning work, just a very itinerant existence.
1: I find this interesting about all the women and many uh, many of the sex workers at the time. Like They get saddled with that label because mm-hmm. it's seen as such a black mark. And yet, this is like a fraction of their existence. It is pathologizing one revenue stream of theirs into their whole identity. I completely agree.
0: And I also think that when you sketch out their lives more fully, you see how sex work is not a disease. It's a symptom of larger social inequalities. Mm -hmm. In 1886, we entered the last two years of Elizabeth's life. Her behavior becomes very erratic. She is arrested far more frequently than before. She also starts seizing and having fits. Mm Hold thinks, and I think this is right, that Elizabeth's syphilis has entered the stage where the patient's mental state is affected. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she's even more vulnerable than before. On September 29th, we reach the last time that Elizabeth is seen alive. Her landlady, Mrs. Tanner, is the one who saw her, and she saw her at 6.30 on a Friday night. Elizabeth actually gave the landlady a piece of green velvet, saying, hold on to this for me, I'll be back for it. But she never comes back. Uh, Elizabeth goes out, and she dies that night. Her death is one half of what is called the double event, It is a night where Jack the Ripper kills two women within hours of each other. So Mm -hmm. he's not just escalating. The crimes are happening faster and faster. Mm -hmm. So Stride is the first of the two victims on the night of the double event. Trigger warning. Skip a minute ahead if you don't want to hear about the details. Her body is discovered at one o'clock in the morning on September 30th, 1888. She is found lying down with a enormous pool of blood near her. Her throat was cut so deeply that her windpipe was sliced through and her carotid artery was partially severed. She is still warm when she's found, so we know she died very shortly before her body was discovered. Here's a horrible detail. One medical professional said that he thought she died slowly and that she could not cry for help given the injuries to her (sighs) neck. She was 45 years old when she died. Now, because Elizabeth's only injury is her incredibly gashed neck, she was not mutilated. Every other part of her body was untouched. Some people wonder if she's really a Jack the Ripper victim because this doesn't fit in with the pattern we've seen. The general thinking is that Jack the Ripper was interrupted Mm -hmm. and he had to leave the body before he could mutilate it. This is Mm -hmm. part of the reason why Elizabeth is found when she's still warm. You know, maybe someone chased him off, never came forward. But he may have just gotten the sense that people are around. This location is bad. Mm-hmm. And indeed, this is the rare killing that produces more than one witness accounts of what Jack the Ripper might look like. Mm-hmm. But we'll discuss those next week. For now, let's turn to the second half of the
1: double event. And that is Catherine Eddowes. Catherine Eddowes came from a working class family, a big family. They had 10 surviving children. Um, her father was a tin plate worker. Her mother was a cook. So that's the kind of socioeconomic background that she grew up in. However, both of her parents were dead by 1857. And Catherine had to enter a workhouse at the age of 15. Because these are awful places to be. She had a bit of an itinerant existence from there. She moved between the cities of Wolverhampton, Birmingham and London. And and Catherine had actually quite a big personality. People described her as a very jolly woman, always singing. And another said she was an intelligent and scholarly individual, but possessed of a fierce temper. And you actually see kind of throughout her story, bits of both these things coming in. She meets Thomas Conway at some point in her young adulthood. They fall in love, and she has some children with him. And this goes well for a while. She even gets his name tattooed on her arm, which is a... Yeah, Hmm. classic move. (laughs) The pair of them move back to Westminster in 1868. And then the stable period of her life comes to a pretty screeching halt. Catherine, like so many of the women we've talked about, takes to drinking... And by 1880, she's left her family, um, just like Polly, and taken up actually with a new man named John Kelly, and they live in Um, And again, that's pretty near Whitechapel. Those mm-hmm, two mm-hmm. areas are very close together, and the canonical five women lived kind of an either-or generally. Some of the details we have from, from Catherine's life at this point really, I think, give some insight into her mental state, her emotional state, and how bitter her split with Thomas Conway was. Uh, Conway drew his pension. He was a military man. He had an army pension. He drew it under a different name to keep the money from Catherine. And he actually kept their son's addresses from her. Um, they were grown up and had different addresses, and he he didn't want Catherine to see them. Uh, she did have her daughter's address. But clearly, Catherine is not someone that her family trusts with money. And she is living in lodging houses. Uh, When she doesn't have the money for that, she occasionally sleeps in the front room at 26 Dorset Street. And like many of the women, in order to supplement her income, she performed casual sex work as well. So on September 29th, which again the, the double event happens in the early morning hours of September 30th, on September 29th, Catherine ostensibly heads out to get money from her daughter, again, whose address she knows and who is living um, a fairly comfortable existence, and she wants to get that money for lodgings. However, she is then found drunk at 8:30 p.m. Um, she's sort of passed out in the road, and she gets put in the city's drunk tank, basically. It's hard to find levity in these stories, especially as you know, this is someone's final moments. But I don't know, in sort of defiance of that horror, Catherine's final moments are just kind of like this broad. So she's kept in this drunk tank until she sobers up and she refuses to give her name to the officers. Instead, she says it's nothing. It's nothing. My name is nothing. It's pretty baller move. Yeah, when she does give a name and address, she says she's Marianne Kelly of 6 Fashion Street, which is the fakest name that I've ever heard. The attitude coming off this woman. I think I like her. Yeah, I like her. (laughs) Um, When Catherine finally sobers up enough that they let her leave at 1 a.m., she says, all right, good night, old cock, to the officer that was (sighs) dealing with her that night. (laughs) Perfect. Oh. When she leaves, for whatever reason, she doesn't head toward her lodging house. And this ends up being her end. At 1.45 a.m., just 45 minutes after Elizabeth Stride was found, mm-hmm. they find her body in Mitre Square. And again, content warning, trigger warning here. Skip ahead if you don't want these details. These ones are especially bad, mm-hmm. I will say. They get worse as they go They do, because the killer, again, as we said, he's escalating. Um, Her throat is severed. Her abdomen is open. We have the intestines on the right shoulder. Her left kidney and her uterus is removed. um, And we get further mutilations. Um, Her nose was cut off. Her eyelids were slashed. And the killer has carved a triangle into each of her cheeks. And her ears are cut a medical professional says that it would have taken five minutes to do this. And that seems short, but imagine doing that on a London street or nearby a London street for five whole minutes. Um, This is a long process, and someone was very confident that they could do this or else very determined to do it. Um, and, Mm. And she was 46 years old. I guess that we haven't mentioned some of the other victims' ages, but all of them are mid-40s except the last woman, I think, right?
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The only person who skews significantly outside of that age range is the final victim, Mary Jane Kelly. She has very mysterious origins. She told different people different things. She said she was Irish. We don't know if that's true. She also said she was disowned by her family, Again, don't know if that's true, but we do know she definitely wasn't in touch with them. She was certainly a sex worker at a dockside part of London, where she saw a lot of clients who were sailors. She was also very beautiful and young. Like like Catherine Eddowes, she seems like a very charming person. She was clever. She was funny. There are also, though, accounts of her as, you know, once you got through this hard exterior, she was very sad. Um, Mm -hmm. She had a lot of regrets and and sadness about her life. And one person described her as ferocious. She certainly became a different person when she was drunk. She was kicked out of her lodgings. She bothered her landlords. Things look up when she marries a plasterer named Joseph Fleming. Um, But he turns out to abuse Mary Jane. So she has to leave him. She turns to sex work again, this time she's in Spitalfields, and soon enough she meets a new man named Joseph Barnett, and he's the really important person in her romantic life. So Joseph wants Mary Jane to stop soliciting, and she does for a time, but their finances are not always dependable, so she turns to it every now and again. This is a really, really sad detail. A month has gone by since the Ripper has struck. All those killings took place in September. It's now early November. But for women in Whitechapel, poor itinerant women, they are still very afraid. Mm They're on high alert. Mm -hmm. Mary Jane has kept up with the Jack the Ripper killings press notices, and she would invite her old friends, especially if they were sex workers, she would invite them to sleep in her house if they couldn't get lodging, because she knew they were vulnerable if they were on the streets. This is so sad to me, because of course, I mean, as we'll see, like even this can't save Mary Jane. Mary Jane is the only victim to be murdered in her home. Yeah. Okay, so Joseph and Mary Jane break up on October 30th. He leaves her. On November 8th, however, he goes back to their small apartment and they have a talk. It's clear that, you know, they've left things in a bad state, but they still have tender feelings for each other. You know, they have a nice long conversation. And he leaves. We don't know what happens immediately next, but we do know that Mary Jane goes to bed early in the morning of November 9th. And that is when she is attacked and murdered in her bed trigger warning and of all of them Mm -hmm. this is the one to truly skip uh, because this is the final murder it is the most extreme and the mutilation is really upsetting uh the next morning uh mary jane's landlord sends his assistant a young boy who should not see what he is about to see he sends the boy to check in on mary jane who is late with her rent Instead, the boy finds Mary Jane's mutilated body on the bed and runs to get the police. Everyone knows immediately that Jack the Ripper has struck again. Mm-hmm. He has come out of his short retirement. The police deduce that Mary Jane died of a severed carotid artery, so again, a slit throat. Mm-hmm. But but before I go into more detail, like, again, truly trigger warning for gore. Also, I will say, if you look up this case, do not look up Mary Jane Kelly's Wikipedia page. For some reason, Wikipedia has just posted a picture of her mutilated body on the page with no warning to the viewer. I found this extremely distressing, and I just want to let you know. Yeah, uh, Because Mary Jane's injuries are brutal. Her right arm is almost severed from her shoulder. It's almost cut off. Her stomach and thighs have been skinned and the skin is on the table next to her. Her torso was completely eviscerated. Her uterus and kidneys were removed and placed under her head. Her liver is placed between her feet. Her spleen is on the left side of her body. Her intestines are on the right side of her body. Her breasts have been cut off. One is under her head. The other is by her right foot. Her arms have been slashed up. Her neck has been cut all the way to the spinal column and into the vertebrae. And her, quote, external organs of generation, this is how a Victorian medical professional at the time who examined her put it, I think this means outer labia. They were cut off. And her face is destroyed. Jack the Ripper has cut off this woman's nose. He has cut off part of her cheeks, cut off her eyebrows, cut off her ears. He has also slashed her lips. There is a picture of this woman and her face is facing the camera on that Wikipedia page. This is why I tell you, do not look. Um, And her heart is gone. They've never found her heart.
1: Yeah, they think that he may have eaten it. That's one theory. And
0: Mary Jane was 25 years old when she was killed. So those are the canonical five victims of Jack the Ripper. Just, you know, one more time. Let's say their names because... I think they get undersold as Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes. And there's this really toxic idea that sex workers don't count as humans. That's not true. So there's Mary Ann Nichols, known as Polly. There's Annie Chapman. There's Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. They had names. They had lives. They had people who loved them. They were complicated. They were innocent. Mm-hmm. You know, I think also one of the worst things this – oversimplification of Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes does, is it almost suggests that, well, these women had it coming. They didn't have it coming. Someone preyed on them. Can't ask to be murdered mm-hmm. by virtue of your profession. And yeah, just to be super clear, we have no time for those equivocations.
1: Yeah. And as as I think we've said, and the through line that's running through this episode is, if their sex work matters, it is only in that the state failed to protect them People failed to protect them because of that. And that Jack is targeting these women because quite often they don't have homes. Um, and then we find out that even if they did, they're not safe there. And it's their social context that has helped put them there. Not a fallen woman, not the bad choices they made. There's a whole world that uphold these systems and put these women in harm's way. And then there's one man who takes advantage. And as I said, if, you know, Jack the Ripper is this enduring mystery, he's a template for so many serial killers that came after him. And I think that one of the reasons why he remains a mystery, one of the reasons why he's ever been caught is because these women were sex workers. That's why it matters. No other reason. Um, This is the world that they were born into. This is the world that Jack the Ripper uh, decided to attack.
0: Yeah, and it was a canny decision because, like, imagine if Jack the Ripper had preyed on angels in the household, upper class women. Mm -hmm. You have to think the surveillance would have been dialed up to 11. Mm -hmm. They would have caught him. But because these are itinerant women, lower class women, I mean, one thing I guess I don't see a lot in discussions of this case is a fulsome police response to preventing crimes. I see a lot of response, Mm -hmm. like a lot of investigation.
1: I don't see a ton of prevention. Yeah, like Mary Jane Kelly is worrying about her fellow sex workers and, and allowing them to have a place to stay. Why aren't the police thinking about that?
0: Also, I will say that To the best of my knowledge, I do not see the serial killer, this incredibly famous serial killer. Like there is not a through line from Jack the Ripper to increased safe working conditions for sex workers Mm -hmm. in England. Right. It does not change their circumstances. So, you know, great. I just want to reiterate that there is such an interesting contextual through line from these acts of devastating violence from on an interpersonal basis, like a person harming another person, and then these larger social structures that are creating the circumstances Mm -hmm. for that crime Mm -hmm. to take place. Like there's such a culpability on the part of the Victorian state.
1: I hope this episode has also shown these women and their lives and their personal histories in the backdrop of their context in a way that isn't overdetermined by their deaths. It's true that we are talking about them because of how they died. That is why they're on this episode. But that is not Mm -hmm. the only part of the story.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think that this episode has introduced you to those women. Of course, there is a major player here we have not discussed. That is Jack the Ripper himself. So... We knew that if we took on Jack the Ripper, we could not get it done in one episode. No. Goodness So me. we are going to come back next week with part two of our two episodes on Jack the Ripper. And we will talk about the man himself. And go through some of the major suspects for who he might be, because to this day, we don't know who he is.
1: Thanks for listening to Yesterday's News, a podcast brought to you by Factinate.com. If you want to see Veronica's history memes on social media, give us a follow on Instagram at Yesterday's News Podcast or Twitter at Pod. You can also now get in touch by emailing us at Yesterday's News at Factinate.com. We'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. We'll be back next week with the second of our two episodes on Jack the Ripper. Until then, don't let the bland textbooks fool you. History was the original true crime documentary.